According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me one more time, if you would, in uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Why do I say one more time? (laughs) One more time in the prologue. How about that? I uh, intend to conclude uh, verses 1 through 4 today. And we'll see if it's uh, not my will but thine be done, if uh, the Lord wants to bring us through this or not. But uh, we have been looking at these first four verses, the prologue, which not only introduces the chapter, but introduces the entire book. Four verses that are some of the deepest verses anywhere in the Scripture, with doctrines that pertain to creation and, and uh, hypostatic union and, and deity of Christ and, and the plan of God, the unfolding plan of God for the ages, dispensations, there's so much that's here, the suffering of Christ, the work of redemption, the work of cleansing and, and purification, so many things that are done and really the last of which is possibly um, the deepest of all, um, he took his seat, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And uh, sitting down doesn't mean that he's not doing anything. Sitting down doesn't mean that he's done or he's retired or he's just doing nothing now, waiting until the next time he stands up. He is actually seated as the head of the church, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is in session. You know, taking a seat is a big deal. When the judge takes his seat, the court is in session and Jesus has taken his seat. He is at the right hand of the Father, and this becomes uh, an important study for us. And we're going to talk about today uh, being seated, and specifically having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And so we have to discuss the principles of inheritance, but specifically in this context, the aspect of naming. What does it mean to name a name and to receive a name, or to inherit a name, to be worthy of a name? And so these are things that we want to understand ourselves because we get a new name as well, a new name written down in glory and uh, things there that I think are a blessing for us to consider, to keep the joy set before us, even as he kept the joy set before him. It allows for us to run with endurance, even as it allowed him to run with endurance and, uh, and all these things. So let's begin with a word of prayer, calling upon God and his faithfulness to lead us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, shall we pray. Almighty Father, we come before you this morning once again, thankful for your truth, rejoicing in the spirit of truth, rejoicing in our position, Father, as your children, and uh, so unworthy of ourselves. Who are we that we should enter into your thinking? And yet here we are in Christ. And Father, I thank you that you have made your thinking known. I thank you that you have uh, expected us to accept what you've revealed and to uh, receive it by faith. I pray, Father, that we might... uh, learn to appreciate these dimensions of, of truth. We might have a greater appreciation for who we are in Christ and be more effective, Father, in our position in Christ as, uh, as believer priests, as ambassadors, as soldiers in this lost and dying world. So teach us through the book of Hebrews, Father, what it means to be uh, a part of your Son. I thank you in His most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, I'll get ahead here to where we are in the slideshow. One of these buttons should do it. Here we go. And we are looking at, is that it? Ah, I'm going to give it to you all at once. I was going to load it up in three parts. 
There we go. Give it to you all uh, in, in parts. <laughs> Don't want to get ahead of myself on this slide, all right? Because there's a lot of meat on this slide. If I just throw it at you and say, okay, read that. I want to take the time to walk us through what we're dealing with here in this verse. Because understand, he is the heir of all things. What does that leave out? Okay, nothing. That's right. He's the heir of all things. But is it all things at once? Or does he receive things in stages? Does he receive things in increments? Is there an unfolding nature of the Father celebrating the Son in different ways? For instance, right now, the Father is celebrating the Son by calling out a bride and by preparing a bride for his son. And, and that's the phase that we're in right now, what we call the church age. But there's a coming tribulation and there's a coming millennium. And in the millennium, we think, well, that's got to be everything. That's got to be the totality of things. And, uh, and unfortunately, it gets taught that way, very frequently it gets taught that way. Uh, the, the Schofield scheme put the millennium as the pinnacle of everything, and then you end up with great white throne and eternity future on the other side. Uh, there's actually failure in the millennium that has to be remedied on the other side, in the new heavens and new earth, what we call the fullness of time for a thousand generations and things that we deal with in those kind of eschatological studies. But the point is, is that the Father is unfolding certain things to the Son. And when we go to Psalm 2, we realize that, that the Son is installed on Zion, that the Son is ruling as a king. And Psalm 2 presents the millennial kingdom for what it is, with uh, Gentiles that don't like it with kings of the earth that take their stand. And they're grumbling against Yahweh, and they're grumbling against his Christ. And they're grumbling against the king who's ruling in Jerusalem, and they don't like, they call it fetters. They don't want to be in bondage to Jesus Christ. And so in that process, in Psalm 2, and I, I'm, I'm going to not read it this morning because of our time, but we're going to get to it again and again and again. It shows up in, throughout the book of Hebrews. Thou art my son, today I have begotten. Yes, Psalm 2, all right? And so in a millennial context, we have a limited provision from the Father to the Son with so much more yet to come. He invites the Son to ask. He says, ask of me, and I will give you the ends of the earth as your possession, right? But in the millennium, in the land grant, is, is, is finite. The, the territory of Israel in the millennium is from the, the Euphrates to the Nile. And we have, we have boundaries. We have the Western Sea. We have boundaries for Israel. And beyond those boundaries is not Israel, right? There's Israel and not Israel. We have all the Gentile nations and those kings, some of which uh, decide to stop coming uh, at various feasts of, of trumpets, and they, they stop assembling at Feast of Tabernacles, and they, they get their rain turned off because of their millennial rebellion, all right? So if you've ever studied the millennium, uh, or if, you've, if you think it's, it's the rosy glow uh, that, that it's been presented, think again. He rules with a rod of iron because it's not an easy rule. And when you really dig into the, into the meat of millennial studies, you'll find out what a failure it is and why the ultimate plan of God is for the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're looking forward to, right? According to His promise, we are looking for millennium? No, we're looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for those things, quit looking for the millennium since you look for those things. Be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. And that's the, uh, the point of what we're studying. So, the heir of all things... He's going to inherit things. He's going to inherit Israel in the millennium. He's going to inherit the ends of the earth in the fullness of time. He's going to inherit a new name, which is what we're having emphasized here in, uh, in Hebrews. He has inherited a more excellent name than any angel has inherited. So what has an angel inherited? And is there a difference between being given a name or being assigned a name and then inheriting a new name, being given a replacement name? And did any angels receive new names? 
And uh, some of these things, we have glimpses, we have clues, and for at least for the angelic realm, we're going to have to wait until we get there to find out all the details. But we do have clues that angels did in fact have original names and then they got renamed. They had new names assigned to them, names as a consequence of either their faithfulness or their fall. All right? And so we'll talk about that as well. This name is greater than any name that is named in this and in the age to come. And, and before I read Ephesians 1 and, and Philippians 2, um, just understand we have a noun and we have a verb here. You name a name. And that seems slightly redundant. It's very Hebraic, okay, uh, to name a name. Um, but that's, that's the way the, the Hebrews would use the expression. You would name a name. We would probably say call a name or assign a name or, or appoint a name. But in, in, to the Hebrew mind, it was always that you would name a name. And there's different ways to name a name. You can name a name when you're giving it, but you can also name a name when you're claiming it. And we name the name of Christ, for example. We name the name of Christ since the day we got saved. And we continue to name the name of Christ. Every time we go to the Father in prayer, what are we doing? We're naming the name of Christ. And so it's part of our prayer life. It's a part of our Christian walk. It's a part of all that we do in the church age is naming the name of Christ. And we'll discuss that as well. And so uh, a name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And so let's take a look at Ephesians 1. Let's, we want to understand this for what it is and, and bring it back to, to Hebrews again and put it in the right context. I think you'll do, uh, you'll do some fun things with it here. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. And realizing that's the end of a long prayer and a context for that, but this is the chapter that's looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. This is the chapter that references the fullness of times in, in, in Ephesians 1.10. This is a chapter that unfolds all the blessings that we have in Christ. The longest sentence in the Greek language is, is right here in verses 3 through 14. And, and we, have, um, we have our position in Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we're looking forward to that uh, dispensation suitable to the fullness of times in verse 10. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Okay, Keep that in mind, summing up. We're going to see some more of that. We're going to see some filling and fullness. Okay, But the dispensation suitable to the fullness of times. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on the earth. Now, with respect to all of this, and I know I'm headed for 20 through 23, um, and I don't have a lot of time this morning, but notice um, us, because we're in this, in this picture in verse 11. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. This is what He's accomplishing. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Were we the first to hope in Christ? Weren't there believers before us? Weren't there Old Testament believers? Okay, So we were the first to hope in Christ after the finished work, after the victory, after the ascension, after the session. That's huge, okay? Because we're talking about this position of us in Christ as a heavenly people seated with Him. So who were the first? Does that mean we're the last? Are there going to be people after us who are going to be saved with the with uh, the, the glorified Christ seated at the Father's right hand. All right, keep, him, keep this in mind now. So we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. And um, in Him you also, then talks about the down payment, what we get with the Holy Spirit as the seal to our, uh, 
the pledge to our uh, inheritance. Okay, so then down to the prayer. And he gives, uh, he gives thanks. And uh, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. That's verse 18. And that you can have epinosis here in verse 19. All right. What is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? I wouldn't trade the church age for anything. We have power available to us that no stewardship has ever had because he has gone to the Father. He is seated at the Father's right hand. And um, so, the, uh, in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. Notice, it's a work of the Father in Christ. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is, this is his exalted position. Raised from the dead and seated at his right hand. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand? Okay? So this is the, this is the meat of Paul's doctrine that we want to understand in the, in the context of, of uh, Hebrews 1. Seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. What are those? Angels, as we understand the divisions of angels and their ranks and their authorities. And we're going to see those expressions again. But far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And then look what we have next. Look at that. Verse 21. And every name that is named. Every name that is named. Okay? And so that there is an angelic conflict being resolved. That the purpose for humanity and humanity's creation and fall and redemption and all of these things is is what God's doing to bring this plan together to address the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The rule, authority, power, dominion, and every name that is named. There are names that have been named going back to the angelic world. And they continue to be named now. They were named then. They were named now. But they're not going to be named in the world to come. Okay? Because, because why? Because His name will be the only name. Because He will be the only one exalted and glorified. That these are going to be subjected to Him. Okay? So far above all ruler, uh, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and, and gave Him His head over all things to the church. Those are two different things. All right, we are the bride, and we're not just a, a beauty pageant winner, right? We, we, there's a purpose for us, okay? He's making us to be this beautiful thing, but a beautiful thing that will serve Him, that will work with Him, that is a helpmate suitable to Him, corresponding to Him. And, uh, and so we have two sides of verse th- uh, 22 there. All things are in subjection under His feet, and notice the all things, gave him his head over all things to the church. To the church, okay? And so we have our position. But remember, it's not only in this age, it's also in the age to come. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right? And so when we put all these things together, there's some deep things in here. When we get these things together, the, 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 the church cannot fulfill the fullness application until the church is fulfilled, until the church is finished. Right now there's very little of the church that's still on planet earth. Most of the church, we've got 20 centuries of the church, it's already in heaven. It's already dead and, and glorified and with the Lord in heaven. The only segment of the bride that's still on earth is the presently living saints, right? And so what is the, what is the ratio of, of 
the currently gen- this generation of currently living believers compared to 20 centuries of believers that have already gone on, most of the brides in heaven. All right. Some dispute that. Some, some drive population figures and think that still half the bride is fully on church on the, on the earth today, but I won't debate that here this morning. All right, so here's what we're dealing with. Every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. That's key. This age is preparation for what's coming up. And you and I in the body of Christ are being prepared for our eternal duties, our eternal priesthood. That's what Christ was doing. We're going to learn in the book of Hebrews that Jesus suffered so that he could be equipped to do what he's doing now. So that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. That what he went through in his first advent was equipping him for the work that he's doing now. Same thing with us. What we're doing here in the church age is equipping us for what we're going to do. What the bride is going to do in service to the Lord, all right, in the millennium, starting in the millennium, but then for a thousand generations in the new heavens and on the new earth, in that dispensation of the fullness of time, okay? Fullness, which is what we see here. The fullness of him who fills, what does he fill? All in all, okay? I'm just teasing you with some ideas and some concepts here this morning. We'll have more to say on this as we go into some future eschatological studies. But the idea of the fullness of time is getting ready to, for Jesus then to bring the thousand generations together and hand the kingdom to the Father. The, uh, the great abdication that 1 Corinthians 15 addresses where he hands the kingdom to the Father. Why? So that God may be all in all. Same language that we see here. Him who fills all in all. All right, so there's a name, and it's a name that he has inherited. Uh, Philippians also addresses this. Now, isn't this a name, the name that he had before? Wasn't he always greater than God? Wasn't he always greater than the angels? Why is it now that he's received a greater name than the angels? I thought he had a greater name than the angels before this. See, well, that's why we pay attention to the, to the verbs, and we pay attention to the, the differences between being and becoming. And what happened when the Word became flesh? What happened when God lowered Himself to demonstrate this? When He lowered Himself to, to free humanity? Okay, And then, of course, He gets exalted. And that's what we're seeing here. Ultimately, Hebrews 1.4 is talking about His exaltation. Because He went to the cross, because He laid down His life, because of that and for no other reason has He now inherited a greater name. A greater name than He had in his incarnation, and even a greater name than he had from eternity past. A name that he has in, the, in, in his victory on the cross, in obeying the Father. So we'll talk about that as well. And Philippians 2 is a good place to do it. All right, Philippians 2, because this is the kenosis chapter. This is when he empties himself. If you can imagine leaving the throne of heaven, okay? You know, when Satan rebelled, it was because he wanted to be God. And he kept saying, when his five I wills, I will be like the most high God. And, and believing that he could overthrow God and take God's place and he'd be a better God than God and all this other stuff. Lies, right? Insanity, of course. And here's uh, Jesus doing just the opposite. In, in, a, in a way to demonstrate and refute and convict and condemn in, in not regarding equality with God, a thing to be grasped. That's verse 6. Okay, we're told in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. The verb is kanao, we got the whole doctrine of kenosis that goes with this. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, 
and being made in the likeness of man. So how how does God resolve the angelic conflict? He answers the the pride of self-exaltation with the humility of of, uh, self-humiliation, of of humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, what happens? He will exalt you at the proper time. That's the pattern. And Christ exemplifies this. He lives this out. So being found in appearance as a man. Remember though, he can't stop being God. Are we clear on that? God the Son is always God the Son. If he could stop being God the Son, then he wouldn't be God the Son because God the Son is immutable. <laughs> okay? Immutability means you can't change what you are. You are what you are. You're perfect. You're God. That's the I am. That's, and he can't stop being that. So what does kenosis mean? When he empties himself, what does that mean? That means that he sovereignly chooses not to use that deity. Never once in his human life did he use his deity, not one time. He never used omniscience, never used omnipotence, never used any aspect of deity in his earthly walk. He was like you and I. He was completely reliant upon God's provision for all that he did. All right. So verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, (laughs) the omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe chose to operate monopresently monopresently like you and me monopresent he's still omnipresent but he limits his perceptions and his his interactions with a monopresent interface right in this physical universe in a physical body in an infant wrapped in in blankets dependent upon other humans to carry him around that's that's kenosis okay humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So for this reason also, notice that you cannot separate out his suffering from his exaltation. It is for this reason. Had he not been obedient, this would not have been the consequence. This is a sign on the basis of his faithfulness. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. This is when he receives it. This is when he deserves it. This is when he earns it. Hebrews says this is when he inherited it, okay? And so it's for this reason, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, those that are on the earth, and those that are under the earth. And we pay a lot of attention to these descriptions because this is, this is a good verse for the uh, fundamental definition of everything. <laughs> in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. That's it. That's every dimension of existence right there. And uh, you'll notice it's different from the Ephesians 1.10 definition, okay? That the under the earth goes goes away in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, it's just in the heavens and on the earth. That's that's huge. Uh, But for here, every knee will bow in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember, it's the Father's plan. So even though God the Father spends all this time working up a plan for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ, what does Jesus Christ do? He accepts it, but in love to the Father, He offers it right back. Because whatever glory the Father bestowed upon the Son, the Son also bestows right back to the Father in in like manner. All right, so we deal with it here as well. Every name that is named, being named a name, being named a name in the passive voice. I mean, somebody else is naming you. Being named a name 
is a submission in humility for angels, animals, and humans alike. Being named a name is a submission in humility for angels, animals, and humans alike. And we'll look at these verses, and they're all familiar, I think. There shouldn't be a shock to anyone. Maybe, maybe Psalm 147 is not as familiar. Isaiah 40 may not be as familiar. But, but if you think about it, just daily life teaches you this, doesn't it? You know? What did you name your cat? What did you name your dog? What did you name your kid? Did you have to? You know? Um, naming something, you have the sovereignty over it, and so you name it. And if somebody else doesn't like what you named it, well, then they better conquer it and have sovereignty over it and name it something else, okay? And, and, and this, by the way, this is, this is fundamental. Satan hates this, totally hates this. That's why he has to get rid of Mount McKinley and make it Mount Denali, okay? Because he hates the idea that a new name has been given when, you know, a, an Indian tribe had given another name to something. And let's, let's go back to those older names, all right? Well, what was the name before they named it? What was the name before they named it? And why are, we only, why, only, why are we only backing up one step? You know, let's back up as far as we can. Well, we can't because they didn't write it down. All right. Um, naming is significant. Why do you think Satan hates it so much? Why do you think, oh, and the, and the whole idea about getting married and taking your husband's name? Oh, <laughs> let me tell you. Okay. Um, there too. Okay. And we're not just talking about matters of, 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 of culture or matters of preference or, or, you know, the ongoing sex wars of whatever, of, of feminists and all that, the evil patriarchy raising his head again. No, we're talking about fundamental principles of how God designed the universe. And when God assigns a name, and why does he assign that name? There's a reason for that. The very act of assigning a name is an expression of sovereignty, Okay? And we want, to, we want to understand this. So um, Psalm 147 in verse 4, he knows every star by name. Every star. You know, can you name all the stars? That's a lot of stars. Why does he count the hairs on your head? Why does he know the stars? And uh, if you think about it, here's humanity that comes along. Let me get to Psalm 147. And um, the naming that takes place. Now here's the stars. Psalm 147 and verse 4. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and and praise is becoming. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The Lord supports the afflicted. He brings down the wicked to the ground. And fundamentally, isn't this a beautiful thing? Don't you love this? You know, the world doesn't work this way. Might makes right. If you're a big, strong bully, you just you know, beat up who you want and take what you want. But God, the sovereign God of the universe, omnipotent over everything, naming all the stars, and yet He loves us and He cares for us. And He looks out for the widow and the orphan. And He cares for the details of what we're dealing with here in life. That's a powerful thing. And the idea of being named, I think that's what bugged Satan more than anything when he said, I will be like the Most High God. The fact that the the rebuke kept coming to him over and over again that, hey, you know, you're a created thing. I remember the day you were created. From the day you were created, you you were sinless until unrighteousness was found in you. 
And he calls him by name in, in, in Ezekiel 28, but he calls him by a different name in Isaiah 14. Calls him Halel ben Shakar. And, and what are these different names? And why does he change the name? And, and what's the title Satan mean anyway? And how do these other names keep getting assigned? Like the slanderer, okay? We call the devil. And, uh, and all these other titles. Who keeps giving them these names? Well, God does, because who's in charge, right? God's in charge. And I love that. I absolutely love that. And it's an aspect of humility, especially if you don't like your name. <laughs> well, you didn't give it to yourself now, did you? Because you didn't procreate yourself either. So guess what? All right, you've got, you've got some genes working in there, and some are dads and some are moms, and here you are, and this is the name we gave you. And uh, all right. Moving right along, Isaiah 40 in verse 6. Isaiah 40 in verse 6. This is a great comfort. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, says your God. And well, that's a great verse, but it's not the one I was thinking of. Uh, naming a name. Okay, never mind. I'll fix that for next week. A voice says, call out. What shall I call out? The mouth of the Lord has spoken. All flesh is grass. Its loveliness is like a flower of the field. Grass withers, flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. That's a marvelous passage, but it's not the one I was thinking of. Verse 20? 26. Hey, there it is. 26. Thank you. 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see... Who has created these stars? The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. There it is. Okay. So just like Psalm 147, the naming of the, uh, of the uh, stars. What about the naming of the animals? How come God didn't name the animals? Why did God tell Adam to do it? Okay. Think about what Adam was learning in the process Adam was exercising in his delegated sovereignty. He was appointed the sovereign of this, of this world. And so God allows him to name the animals. And we see this in Genesis 2, verses 18 through 23. And, uh, and, and of course, Adam is not God, and Adam is, is not infinite in his understanding. He's very finite in his understanding. So he named cats cats. He didn't give individual personal names to every cat in the world. All right. He named dogs dogs. He named the animals, and God validated, he accepted the names that Adam selected. But it's interesting, it starts in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Everything God made in six days was good. It was very good, except here's something that was not good. Man's, uh, Adam's aloneness. He was not designed to be a lone uh, operator. Uh, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Not that he's ignorant or he's, he doesn't know. It's not for informational purposes. But it's the, it's the designed responsibility. Appointing Adam with this responsibility. And not micromanaging or changing or saying, well, you did that wrong, let me give it a better name. Okay? If Adam said it was a, a goat, it was a goat. Or a sheep or an elephant or whatever it was. Okay? And God went with that. And said, okay, that's what it is. And so... Uh, 
man gave, called a living creature. That was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle, the birds, the sky, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. See, the purpose for these names, among other reasons, was identifying the fact that none of them was suitable for his helpmate, for his, for his uh, corresponding worker. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep. And we understand, here's the rib and here's the woman. And, and look what happens, Okay. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, well, whatever he wants. He's naming her, okay? He has the sovereignty, okay? Not fashionable today, but it's what the text says. But he's got biblical reasons, spiritual reasons, God's reasons. She came out of man. That's theologically significant. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And there you have it. So it's a, it's a humility. And if you want to be in defiance and say, well, that's not my name, that's not what I am, well, yeah, that's your name and that's who you are. That's who you've always been. That's the name we gave you. You want your own name? All right. Satan did. He wanted his own name. He wanted to declare the I am status that he was not entitled to. Inheriting slash meriting a greater name. This is an exaltation. So the first is a submission. The second is an exaltation. Inheriting or meriting a name, a greater name is an exaltation. When Abram became Abraham, what was happening there? God changed his name. Took him from Abram to Abraham and theologically taught him why. Genesis 17, 5, renamed Sarah as well in the same context. You got verse 5, verse 15, verse 19, and there's the renaming of Abram to Abraham. Why is that significant? In fact, there's... uh, (laughs) Oh, this world, so many liars around here anyway, but um, Islam wants to talk about being a great Abrahamic faith. Ishmael was born to Abram, not Abraham. All right? And uh, that's, there's a point to be made in that. Scripture makes the point. Okay? Abraham, Abram was called while uncircumcised, and there's a point being made in that. But Abraham fathered Isaac, and that came through Sarah. Not Sarai, Sarah. Abraham and Sarah were the parents of Isaac, and only Isaac. Keturah had all the other ones, and, and Hagar had uh, Ishmael. So Genesis 17, 5, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For, here's the explanation, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. God has a plan and a purpose for Abram's life. And part of that includes the new name. God has a plan and purpose for your life. you got a new name on the way also. Okay, we won't find out about it till we get there, but it's written down in glory. We'll have it when we get there. The white stone has it already inscribed. Say, well, I don't like that name. Can I pick out something different? He didn't ask you. Okay, it'd be like asking your baby, "What, what do you want me to call you?" You know, and it's just drooling. Okay, all my kids would be named drooling. I don't know. No, we don't ask them that. We name them what we name them because we're the parents. That's how that works. Or the pet owners or whatever, if you're naming your goldfish. 
whatever name you'd like, that's entirely your freedom. You've got the discretionary will of God, exercise your sovereign mandate, creation mandate, and name your animals. Uh, Jacob becomes Israel. Let me finish this because we've got Sarah here too. Uh, Verse 15 and verse 19, God said to Abram, Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. Okay, not to Sarai, but to Sarah. And this is the promise. I will bless her. She should be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And then, by the way, when, uh, when laughter gets here, you're going to name him Laughter. That's verse 19. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And we have the laughter there and the promise of, uh, of that. Um, if you think about it, we've got some other examples. Of course, there's Israel in uh, Genesis 32, verses 28 and 29. And here he's wrestling with the angel, and he's going to get a name. And it's a, it's a curious episode as well. This is a good text. If you ever want a proof text that the angel of the Lord is the Lord, this is a good chapter to go to. You got you know the, the angel of Yahweh, who is Yahweh. That's his name. Um, we understand it's Jesus Christ, God the Son, who comes forth in a Christophany before his incarnation. He comes as the angel of the Lord many times. And uh, here they're wrestling, and, and that's where the place gets named Peniel, and Jacob gets his new name. Um, let's see here. Anyway, verse uh, 28, he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. The striving one, okay? Or the troublemaker, (laughs) the wrestler, the one that, that grapples with things, not always for the right reasons. That's Jacob. And, uh, and to have that name assigned, for the whole nation, and it's probably a good thing. God in His grace didn't make the whole nation the nation of laughter, but He made the whole nation the nation of, of wrestling, the nation of struggle, prevail. Okay, one He who strives with God. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. Ah, oh, now we're getting somewhere. Why do, what does Jacob understand with respect to these names and why these names are so significant? And he's not going to be given to him. It won't be until Exodus then that Moses has the full impact of what Yahweh is all about. God will explain Yahweh to Moses as the I am principle. The self-existence of Aye, of I am, is the, is the uh, purpose or the memorial name behind, behind Yahweh, behind the Lord. And, and Jacob is asking for this, but Jacob's not given this. Instead, the Lord says, why is it that you're asking um, why is it that you asked my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. But he's not going to be given the impact of, of Yahweh. That, that's reserved for Moses in the book of Exodus. That's not given to Jacob at this time. All right, Numbers 13, 16. Uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, he had another name. He was Hosea, but Moses called him Yahashua, called him Joshua. There's the renaming there. Maybe not as significant as some of these other ones, but it, it's given there for a reason. So what's the difference between Hosea and Yahashua? The difference between Hosea and Joshua? It's a Y in front of it. Recognizing that God's the one who does the saving. How about 2 Samuel chapter 12? Let's look at that one. 2 Samuel chapter 12. How heartbreaking is this? 
when parents have the best of intentions for their child and they give a name and they give a, a special name and then he never lives up to it. How tragic is that? Second Samuel 12. This is the birth of Solomon. Remember Solomon had an older brother that died? Remember the, the child of, of adultery? Okay, uh, Because she was still Uriah's wife. And, uh, and so God uh, struck down that child. And then uh, the child dies. And then now uh, David, it says in verse 24, comforted his wife Bathsheba, went into her and lay with her. And she gave birth to a son. And uh, he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet. And he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. What a powerful renaming. You want to know what? It's the only time we ever see the name Jedidiah. He never uses it. It never comes up again. For the rest of Solomon's life, he is never referred to as Jedidiah, even though Yahweh sent him this name through the prophet Nathan. And to me, that's, that's one of the saddest things in, in the whole Bible compared to what could have been, the life Solomon could have had in his wisdom had he applied it with humility. Anyway, there's a, a great exaltation. Finally, Matthew sixteen eighteen, you are Peter tempted to call you knucklehead, but I will call you Peter. Is on this rock. And the whole point being, not that he's the head of the Catholic Church, that's the mythology that gets invented here. The gender is, is different. So when you're learning masculine nouns and feminine nouns and neuter nouns, and when you're learning all these things, you can learn the difference between a Petros and a Petra. And, uh, but, but using the play on words to make a point is what happens here. And, and, and this comes, by the way, in a class when Jesus is quizzing his disciples on who he is. And so who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Who is this guy? And so he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so he has everything right there. Messiah, sonship from Psalm 2 the living God. So much doctrine right there. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. So his given name is Simon. He is the son of John, Barjona. Um, and then he gets a, a name. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say that you are Peter. Aramaic would be Kephos, Cephas. Greek would be Petros. You are Petros, Peter, masculine noun. And upon this Petra, okay, Upon this rock. In other words, the confession that he makes is the foundation of the church, not Peter the person. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And so he gets his name and there it is. Naming is significant. And so inheriting a name, meriting a name, being given a name, being awarded a name by the one that has judged you as worthy. That's huge. Because Jesus Christ ascends to the Father and the Father awards him this name. He is victorious when he ascends. And the Father awards, awards him the name that is above every name. Every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in, uh, in the age to come. Understand that for us as well. New names in glory are given. They're given to Zion. They're given to Christ. They're given to his overcomers. That's us. 
I believe we can find new names given to Israel as well. There's promises in the Old Testament of new names. My servant will be known by a different name, it says. That's also Isaiah. I don't think I, it's not the same as the one I put on the screen. But think about these new names. Think about your loved ones that have already gone. They have their new names. That's the, that's the reward for the overcomer that we're told is carved in that white stone. That is a grace provision for us in the body of Christ. Why would we not have a new name? We're in Christ and he's got a new name. And so there's, uh, there's excitement there to look forward to, okay? Isaiah 62. <clears throat> Isaiah 62, and we'll look at this. We may have some extra time today. I have a chance to look at Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 before we leave. That would be good. All right, Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. Well, (laughs) um, okay, if you say so. You know, but holding your breath, waiting for Jerusalem's righteousness is, uh, you know, from an Old Testament perspective, you're going to be waiting for a while, okay? Because they've been, they've been a faithless harlot for a long, long time. But in, in what they've been promised, though, in the millennial kingdom, this harlot's going to be a faithful bride again. And so um, that's something to sing about. The nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. That's the, the role they've been designed all along and rarely have they ever fulfilled it. Where Gentile nations could look to the Jews and say, yes, that's what we want. That's our example. That's godliness. That's truth. And Gentile nations could look at Israel as, as the stewards and learn from them and follow that example. Usually through most of the Old Testament it was the other way around, wasn't it? Here were the Jews surrounded by a bunch of Gentiles and they decided to try to outdo them in their pagan you know, pursuits. They would be defiled by the Gentiles around them instead of being examples and ministers, stewards to the Gentiles around them. That, all that's going to change in the millennium. And so uh, the nations will see your righteousness, all the kings, your glory, and you will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. And so this is with reference to Zion. This is millennial Israel. You could think of this as the city of Jerusalem specifically, or the Jewish people at large. You could think of this as the Jewish people in the millennial kingdom under the label here of Zion. You will also, it goes on, verse 3, but, and do they pick this out for themselves? No, Yahweh designates it. The mouth of Yahweh will designate it. Verse 3, you will be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. That's quite a change. You know, in the Old Testament, he was divorcing her. He gave her a certificate of divorce and said, that's it. You're a faithless wife. She has been all throughout the Old Testament, a faithless harlot, but he's going to take her back. Okay, Just like Hosea took Gomer back. Verse 4, it will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor uh, to your land will it any longer be said desolate. See, those are the old names. That's the reputation she has in the tribulation. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, or Beulah. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. Will be married. 
Okay? So we talk about a new name. This is what Zion has to look forward to. And all the, the other names and the ugly names and the desolate and all that, that's all gone. He's going to bring them through tribulation in order to bring them into the millennial kingdom. And so there's Beulah, by the way. The only time Beulah shows up in, in the Bible. And we get a lot of music based on that. Um, all right. A young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. Your bridegroom rejoices over you. It goes into some other things. Um, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. A true celebration. Verse 6, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night, they will never keep silent. This is our model for prayer, right? This is uh, what we talk about when I say get on the wall. Not only do, you want, do I want you in your armor, but I want you up on the wall. Be on the alert. You're supposed to be on duty when you're in that armor. What are you doing in that armor anyway? Okay? On your walls. Get to prayer. I have appointed watchmen all day and all night. They will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest. Notice that? Isn't that beautiful? What do we do in prayer? We remind the Lord. Not because he's forgetful, not because he has amnesia episodes. We, get, we remind the Lord because He tells us to. This is what glorifies Him. This is what pleases Him. He delights in a child that calls upon Him. And every time we call upon Him, we're not calling upon Satan, are we? And the Father says, yes, my child. Okay? It's a beautiful thing. So take no rest for yourselves and give Him no rest. Okay? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we? Uh, let's just... Okay? Be the peskiest kid you can. Jesus taught that. Be pesky. Be like that widow and the judge and just keep wearing them down. Jesus said that's the positive example. That's the take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest imperative from Isaiah 62. And I love it. All right. Uh, Christ has a new name. We have a new name. So let me grab Revelation 2 on my way to Revelation 19. We'll see them both. How about that? Revelation 2, because that's us, and then it's on the way to Jesus in uh, Revelation 19. By the way, other pastors do teach these overcomer rewards differently. I believe the overcomer is the one that's believed in Jesus Christ in the church age. And that's uh, 1 John, who is he who overcomes, right? It's us, it's our faith. We are the overcomer. And uh, you can't throw these awards away. You can't lose these awards. There are other passages that speak about rewards that you can win and lose and rewards you can throw away. And there's, there are other passages that address that. But these are the overcomer rewards and we are overcomers in Christ. Not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it, but because we are royal family of God in Christ. And so as I teach Revelation 2 and 3, these uh, from all seven churches, these overcomer rewards are assigned to every single one of us. The biggest loser in the church age is more rewarded than any believer of any previous dispensation. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Great verse. Not what I'm, that's verse 7. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. 
Isn't that precious? I love that. You know, think about how personal that name is. A name that only you and your father know. Nobody else knows that name. They're not entitled to that name. That is a name of intimacy. That is a name of tenderness. That is a name of, think about special people in your life and you call them certain things and nobody else calls them those things or they better not. And, uh, you know, you find there's, there's that, that endearment and that tenderness, okay? And, and what, I'm not saying whatever they are, that's fine. That's not, I don't want to know. That's between you and whoever, okay? The point is that we get this name from our Father. And I, and I think, I've often thought, this is the name He greets us by when, when we enter through the veil and, and we're, we're brought into His presence. He says, welcome, and He calls us by our new name. How powerful is that? And so it's, uh, it's described here. And Jesus has this new name as well. Revelation 19, verses 12 and 13. And there's other names that we do know about <coughs> that are also written down. His eyes are a flame of fire. All right, verse 11, I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and wages war. This is heaven opening, getting ready for Armageddon. This is Jesus descending out of heaven. We're going to follow on white horses as well. Okay? When I give my exam, Revelation exam to the students in Ukraine, I ask... I think it's question 19. One of the questions on the exam, I say, do you know how to ride a horse? (laughs) And actually, I give them credit for the answer. I don't care what they answer. I get a point for that that question. Um, But the point is to to start thinking about what do we have to look forward to? What's coming up? What uh, eschatologically, what is still yet future for us? His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. See, he is the ultimate overcomer. We're overcomers because we're in him. But as an overcomer, all those awards that are promised, they're his. And and they're ours because we're in him. And so he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, we're following him on white horses. And so there we are too. And, uh, but don't worry, it looks like he does most of the fighting or all of the fighting here. From his mouth comes the sharp sword. All right, so the idea of naming. <coughs> naming a name. Every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Now there are angels whose names are named and they've been named. And those rulers and authorities, those principalities and those powers, they too have to be put in subjection. Positionally, they are in subjection, but we're waiting for the new heavens and new earth when not only positionally, but in reality, when angels will start to exercise what they were designed to do. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Angels are designed to be the servants someday. They've never fulfilled that role, right? Not totally. I mean, they've had some guardian functions. They've had some other servant-type functions, but not in the way that they will in the new heavens and on the new earth. The idea that they're going to be our servants in eternity. For the elect angels, it's a privilege, and they're an amazement. For the fallen angels, they're horrified. They are utterly disgusted at the idea that these beings of power and light and glory are going to be subjected to these cockroaches, 
to these dust creatures, to these mortal, puny, disgusting, filthy, stinky things. Okay? And it's anathema to the fallen angels that that's their destiny. Serving us? Never. Okay? So they have vowed and so it shall be because the fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And, uh, and, and that's what they have to look forward to. All right, well, I am finished. This is our, this is our um, prologue in verses 1 through 4. Uh, let's just take a couple minutes and then we'll dismiss with prayer and our closing hymn. Um, join me, if you will. Let's look quickly at Ezekiel 28, remind you of this, and then Isaiah 14. If you're not familiar with this or if it's been a while, let's take a look at these names. And uh, we have the king of uh, the ruler of Tyre, the leader of Tyre in verse two, son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, and we have a message of, of, of judgment because of his pride that follows, because your heart is lifted up and you've said, I am a God. And so you read through this, it's a, it's a huge rebuke upon the ruler or the leader of Tyre. But then in um, verse 11, is a follow-up message. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. It's a different term. And we have in this second message, we have uh, uh, the, the power behind the throne. We have a human being in the early part, and we have Satan in the, in the second part of this chapter. <clears throat> and so, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You have the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And we can take this as a name. You are or you were the sealer of perfection. Taking that as a title or taking that as a name, see, in recognition of who he was and what he does or what he did. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Are we talking to a human being here? No. Adam and Eve were the only human beings that were ever in Eden. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel. Look look how beautiful this creature was. And all these gems, that's better than fur, better than feathers, better than scales, better than uh, any of that. The gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. See, Yahweh keeps reminding him that he's a created thing. He's a created being. He is a creature. (laughs) Okay? He is a creature. And what I think Satan truly rebels is the thought that he doesn't want it to be true, so he convinces himself it's not. You ever know anybody like that? uh, Yes, God may have been there first, but that's only what it seems like. You know? I can't remember a time when there wasn't God, but... I'm sure there, there was, okay? See, Satan is such a liar, he, he believes God was, God's a liar. And all he's got to do is prove it. And as soon as he can prove it, then he's right. So all he's got to do is prove God in one lie. That's, what he's, that's the whole plan of Satan right there. Prove God in one lie. And interestingly enough, the sealer of protection, Yeah, I, I think you can take it as an, as an active participle here, Not only that you had the seal of perfection, you were the sealer of perfection. You were the one that held the stamp. 
If something was perfect, boom, you put your stamp on it because you were the sealer of perfection. And isn't it curious how Satan's doing that very thing? Putting the stamp on God's perfection, even by his own rebellion. It's an interesting thing to consider. So that's one of his names. And then Isaiah 14 has his other name here. Before the fall even, or as he's falling, maybe this is the name God gives him as he kicks him out. Lucifer, star of the morning, son of the dawn, right? Isaiah 14, the five I wills. And uh, in this name, it's Latin where we get Lucifer. That's how Jerome gave it in the, in the, in the Vulgate. But um, how, uh, verse 12 is where the name occurs. The taunt begins prior to that. The taunt is introduced here in verse 4. And it's a taunt against the oppressor. And so these other verses here, Sheol is excited to meet you when you come. They've got a parade ready for when you get here. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you. Worms are your covering. Get ready. This is going to be fun. How you have fallen from heaven. Halel ben Shachar, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. And here's another name that's being assigned. Okay? You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, see the angels were organized into nations. But you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. He was lusting after that seat. When we come back next, or in two weeks, when we come back to Hebrews and we move past the prologue, all right, to which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? Satan wanted that seat, but he wasn't entitled to it. He didn't merit the name that, that is to be named above every name. But I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That right there is a non sequitur. You can't become something that's eternally is. The I am has no becoming. The I am is and always was, always is, always will be. But that's, again, more of his insanity. I will make myself like the Most High. All right. Well, if you have any questions on that, we can bring that up on Wednesday. We can answer those questions. There was also a follow-up. B3 took questions Wednesday night. I was was thankful. I heard that. I go, wow, B3 took questions. Usually a guest speaker doesn't take questions on Wednesday night. But um, I'm going to address one of those that that, that he didn't get wrong necessarily, but there was more to to unfold in that. So uh, I'll start with that one, and then we'll have more questions on Wednesday. And if you have anything at all about naming a name or the names that are named or the name in the age to come, then uh, we can use Wednesday night to talk about that as well. That's, that's important stuff. All right, Father, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for Hebrews. And I'm looking forward to moving through these chapters and seeing the, the passages that are addressing the angels and, and uh, being able to give the answer, Father. It's, it's beautiful for us because we have the hindsight. We can, we can relate our, our New Testament back to our Old Testament and, and demonstrate all these things. And Father, I'm looking forward to seeing how the book of Hebrews starts to um, shape our priesthood, how it shapes our ambassadorship, how it shapes our soldier function, that we identify with what is our confession. How do we walk in this confession? Why do we enter within the veil that is His flesh? Why do we appear in the presence of God now? What are we doing here? And I pray, Father, that in all these things 
that uh, the book of Hebrews is going to come alive for us and shape what we do individually and what we do collectively as a local assembly. How do we operate as a lampstand uh, here as Austin Bible Church? So uh, we're, we're eager for these things and thankful that, uh, that you're so faithful to lead us into all this realm of truth. Uh, continue to be at work, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.